My name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number 28. And today what we're going to do is continue on with the same uh, topic, which is property management that we were discussing during show 27. Uh, I was going back through my notes and taking a look at it. The, uh, what we basically talked about the last time, or we finished off, was the application or the, I'm sorry, not the application, but the actual contract that you as a real estate agent would sign with the owner of the property in order to uh, manage their property called a property management agreement. So we discussed all of that. So the concept now is, you know, now that now you're in a position where, you know, the landlord has turned around, they have decided to hire you to be the person that's going to take care of their property and manage their property. And now the next thing that you're going to do as an agent is that you're going to turn around and advertise the property for rent. You're going to be showing the property to prospective tenants. And then finally, if, for those tenants that are interested, you're going to be taking a rental application from them. Uh, a couple things I do want to mention if you're showing the property. Uh, typically, properties usually are either in one of two conditions when you get ready to show them. If, it is a one, if it's one specific home, usually in, in many cases you may find out that you're going to be showing the home while the existing tenant is still living in the house. This sometimes can be a very delicate situation. I have found out that if I tr have treated my tenants well, they'll work with me uh, uh, very hard to make sure that I find a new tenant for the house. And Plus, by the way, in the rental agreement that I will have them sign, I will have them sign when they first move in, notifying them that, listen, when it comes time for you to move out, one of the things I will need to do is to have your permission to come in and show the house to prospective tenants. One, the reason why I say you have to make sure you have a really good relationship built with that tenant is because of the fact that you can force your way in there. You know, you can say, I'm giving you notice, I'm going to come in according to the contract, and then you'll find out that maybe they'll say, okay, if you want to come in, come on in but then they won't have the house clean or it won't look tidy or won't look nice. So if you want the home to show really well, it's a good idea to be working very well with or working really hard with the existing tenant and explaining to them how you're trying to make this transition phase really uh, go as smoothly as possible. I know myself as a, as a landlord owner, I have done things uh, where I've taken, um, I've actually taken and offered to help people move some furniture. I've actually offered to do things like maybe take some things to the dumps for them because I've had a truck. And by doing that, it has allowed me to do some things like maybe get there okay to go in and paint a room ahead of time. So it's amazing if you work with the tenants how they'll work with you. Now, the other kind of a property that you may have is, is where maybe you have a situation where it's, it's vacant. Vacant properties are really not that difficult to show because usually there's no furniture in it. The big thing you want to do is make sure that it's clean, it's tidy, it's all vacuumed, and, and you know all, there's no garbage laying around. It's just really nice and shows well. And a lot of times that may happen, especially if the tenants, the existing tenants have moved out and the market's a little soft and you're finding it a little bit difficult to rent the house out. So it might be vacant for a little bit of period of time or even if it's an apartment. 
Uh, the other way I've seen people do it too is where you're renting an apartment complex and there's people living in the existing unit and you may very well have other units that are identical to the unit that they're going to be renting. And you may very well want to take and show them those units. I've seen that done before. So keep in mind there's a number of different ways. The bottom line is though is that once you show tenants the property and they finally agree or and they say I really like this property a lot and I really would like to rent it the next phase that you're going to go through is you're going to obtain from them a rental application in other words you're not going to go and immediately sign a lease or a rental agreement with them what you're going to do is you're going to fill out a rental or have them fill out a rental application depending upon your philosophy a lot of times like in apartment houses they'll actually have the tenants at the same time pay for this fee because there's a fee for uh, something called the screening process that's going to happen so you'll probably ask the tenant for a fee to run that screening uh, screening application which is going to do things like run credit checks and run uh, to see if they've ever been evicted from any properties or anything like that so anyway, you, that's the next phase you're going with. You're going to get that information from the tenant, and then you're going to go ahead, Dan, and, and run that. Like I was saying, I believe it's the Residential uh, Housing Association, I think. I'd have to go back and look it up in Sacramento, which is a member of the California Apartment Association. They can do this for a fee. The application has to be filled out, and it has to be signed by the tenant. Um, Anyway, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little bit of time going over that application. One of the things that I have found out through my own personal experience is that normally if people do not have anything to hide, they're more than willing to share that information on the form. If they start to get very uh, kind of fidgety about, you know, well, I really don't know if I want to disclose this, I don't know if I want to disclose that, people are not going to rent to them. And so usually you can tell fairly, you'll develop like a, a gut feeling for this, that you'll know whether or not these people are really going to be kind of telling you the truth so that when you go down there and run that application, what, you know, that it's going to come back and it's going to come back clean. Uh, also, too, if you charge them a fee, they'll know that if it comes back and there's a problem with it, that their fee is gone. So that's another way that you kind of pre-screen them ahead of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over here and move over into the uh, rental application for a minute and just go through a couple items so you're familiar, not the whole thing, but just a few. Uh, up here at the top, it just says that this is the tenant, okay? And uh, the total number of applicants, that is important, so you want to know who's all applying to pay the rent. Uh, it could be a husband or wife. It could be uh, if people are going to college. It could be roommates. It could be a lot of different people that are applying. You take the application for the property located at, so this is where it is, like 123 Main Street, apartment number 5, whatever. Then what the amount of the rent is and how much it is. Is it per month, per year, per, you know, how often is the rent going to be collected? And then the proposed move-in date. In other words, when do they plan on moving in? You know, the first of the month, the middle of the month, the end of the month, you want to know what that is. Down here is the personal information you're going to have them filling out, and this is information that they use in order to run those background checks. So they're going to be looking for things like this. You want the full and correct name of the person. And this is very important. A lot of times you may need to go back to the person and say before you submit the application, now are you sure this is the name that we're going to be able to locate your records under? And sometimes some of you may say, well, why, why would I do that? It's sort of a silly question. Why wouldn't they divulge the right name? The reason why I say that is because a lot of times people will do things like get married 
and they'll forget that all of the records are underneath their old name. Uh, so things like that will happen. And so you need to ask them, is everything going to be underneath this particular name or is there another name that you may be listed under? Social security number, driver's license number, the state where the driver's license is, the date it expires, their phone number, home, work, and other how to get a hold of them, and their email address if they have one, especially if you're renting to people out of, from out of town. Uh, the names of the proposed occupants. What you want to do is know who's going to live there. You don't want to be renting the place out to find out that you think it's a husband and wife and maybe a child and come to find out you're renting out and they're turning it into a rooming house, which was never designed to do. So you want to know who's going to live there. If they have any pets, this is another area that's really, really important because uh, a lot of times, let me just tell, tell you a little bit about pets. Pets are something that, um, you know, some people say, oh, I have a cat, a dog, that's fine, you know, that's fine. But, uh, you know, pets can do an awful lot of damage, a lot of damage to a house. I mean, I have, I have seen, uh, uh, just to give you an example, Bob, you want to come back to me, uh, I'll give you an example of this. I have a friend of mine that bought a uh, two duplexes one time, and what happened was, uh, and they were, I think they were out in the Carmichael area, and what happened is, is that out of the two duplexes, which was a total of four units, three of the units were vacant. And so he was buying these units as what we commonly refer to as a fixer-upper, something that needs to be fixed. He had one unit that was occupied, the other three were vacant. Uh, those units uh, had some broken windows in them. Uh, you know, they, they had carpet that needed to be replaced or whatever. So one of the first things that he wanted to do was to get the windows replaced because in case it rained, he didn't want the rain blowing in, into the uh, house. Well, what ended up happening, he calls out the glass guys. They come in. They replace the windows. He goes. There was a, I think he was going away for a couple days out of town. Closes the place up. Closes the doors comes back on Monday or Tuesday, it goes to open the doors on the place, and the odor in there just about knocked him right down, flat out in front of the house, the smell. What happened is, is that broken windows were allowing the air to circulate through the house and keep the smell out. By closing the doors, what happened is it trapped it all inside, and what happened is, is that the animals that had been in that house you know, they had, uh, let's say, go to the re they had gone to the restroom in the house, and the carpets were just just uh, soaked with this, and he ended up having to rip everything out. And it's a, so it's a real big problem. And also, a lot of people today are really, really concerned when they move in. They're, they can have children that have things like allergies to uh, cat hair. Cat hair, for some reason, seems to be a big problem. Dogs, and uh, and especially if people smoke, is another thing. Because what happens is you can find out there's, there's fewer and fewer people that smoke, and those people that don't smoke, what happens is, is for some unknown reason, they, they develop a really good sense of smell, and you can find out you have your place really fixed up really nice, really well, and there's some odor in there, and you're having a heck of a time trying to rent it out. So keep in mind that, that this is a real important issue. Do you want to rent with a, uh, pets or don't you? It's totally up to you, but make sure you're aware of that, and then you also may want to get a pet deposit you know, so that people know that you're serious about this. It's very, very important. Um, going back to here, uh, next thing you're going to be looking for is things like the type of auto they have, auto make, model, license number. This becomes important, that and other vehicles, because of the fact that if, if say, a, a car is parked in front of the house or in a spot and you don't know whether it's theirs or somebody else's, especially if it's in like a condominium or a home, you know, uh, or some of the newer homeowners associations, and if they can't identify who the car is, after it sits there for a day or two, they're going to tow the thing. So you want to know who in the world, you know, what their license plate numbers are, 
Same thing like they ask at a motel's. You want to know in case of an emergency who to contact, who their, what their address is, does the applicant or any proposed use any liquid uh, filled furniture. That's another big issue now. At one time, uh, uh, waterbeds were a big, big thing. Everybody in town, there used to be a company in town called Labrie's Waterbeds. They used to run TV shows at night, and a lot of people liked them. The problem is, is that water weighs a lot. I think if I calculated it out, it's something like about, uh, I want to say about uh, almost eight pounds per gallon. It's very, very heavy. Uh, if it's up on a second floor, it can actually, if the, if the floor can't handle it, it could actually make the floor collapse or if the bed leaks. So that's why you want to know about that, if they're doing something, having any kind of water beds or anything. Has the, uh, you want to know if the applicant's ever had an unlawful detainer, and if so, what the problem was. Has the applicant uh, ever been uh, convicted of uh, or pleaded uh, no contest to a felony? You want to know what that was. So these are asking specific questions about the individuals. Next thing is, is you want to know where they're currently living, their residence, where they're currently at right now who their landlords are, and have I called the landlords on, on people? Yes. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in an area, you're going to find out, uh, like houses that I've rented a lot of times, they're, you know, they're fairly good-sized houses, and, and people that have moved in have been people that are moving to town, going to live there for maybe a year, year and a half, turn around and build or buy another house. But then you'll also find people that will move into the community and they've been renting for a number of years. You want to know who that landlord is. You want to give them a call and find out if they've been, you know, good tenants or not. Another way to check. Very important. Uh, this is their income, employment history and income here. So you're filling all this out and who their supervisor is. Uh, going on from there, there's some other things that you're going to want to check on. Uh, credit information. Uh, people don't realize this, but when you ask for credit uh, information, what they're going to do is when you run that credit report, this stuff is going to show up. What you're really doing in that case is to find out whether they're telling you the truth on, on the application. If they just put down that they have one credit card account, you're going to run the uh, run the credit background check and find out they've got 10 accounts and they owe everybody in the world, you know that they're not truthful when they fill out an application, which can be an indication that there's going to be a problem with this tenant. They're not going to tell you the truth. So that's why you want to know that. Uh, here's any kind of personal references that they may have uh, and nearest relatives. Okay, And then finally down the bottom here is just where they're going to sign it. And then this is the where the screening fee is. In other words, you will already know what this fee is going to be, and you're going to have tell them what that happens to be. And, and, and my recommendation is if you're in the business of uh, renting property for other people, maybe not necessarily your own, because I've had in my case where sometimes I've paid the screening fee for whatever reason. I can't think of why. But the thing is if you're in the process of, of having a lot of people apply on a regular basis to rent properties, you could go out of business if you're paying that screening fee. So consequently, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to collect that from the tenant or the prospective tenant, and what you're going to want to do is you're going to run that credit or that background check to find out. And if they don't want to pay the fee, which everybody else in the world is asking them to pay, then you know that's another indication to say, listen, if the person doesn't even want to pay the fee, I'm not going to rent to them. Okay, so that's, that's the concept behind it. Uh, 
I'm going to go and point out a couple things on the actual rental agreement that you have. Uh, some of you have maybe heard this before or have seen this before. Uh, again, this is a California Association of Realtors form. This application goes on and on that's in this book, and I'm not by no means going to go over everything, but I'll get you a little bit familiar with what's here. This happens to be where you're identifying who the landlord is and who the tenant is on this uh, property. You're saying the property rents to, uh, rents to the tenant, and the tenant rents from the landlord and improvements, okay? And then you're identifying where the property is located, okay? And then down here in this particular paragraph, you're making an identification on what kind of a of a rental agreement, if you will, this is. Is this going to be a month-to-month -month agreement or is this going to be a lease agreement? The difference, one of the major differences between the two of these is you'll notice under a month-to-month -month agreement, there's actually no ending date in here. On a lease agreement, there's actual where you started at a certain date. So you're actually putting down, you're saying the lease is, and, you know, the lease is going to be signed on that date and it shall terminate, and then you're putting the date down that it's going to terminate, and whether it's going to be a.m. or p.m. So in other words, there's no need because it's a lease agreement, to give them a 30-day notice. It's already built into the contract. Uh, down below is just the terms. This is where the tenant is going to tell you how much they're going to pay, when they're going to pay it, like on the first. Uh, they're going to tell you how they're going to pay it. This is another paragraph here that I think is kind of important nowadays that you may want to think about. And the reason why is because uh, what's happening is that people are many people nowadays are not even writing checks anymore. What they're doing is, is that they're having, uh, they're doing all their banking online. And so they're setting up these checks. They look like a check that automatically come out and get sent to the landlord on a regular basis. And so you want to know how are they going to get you the rent. You'd expect it in the mail. Is it some kind of an electronic transfer? You know, is it going to be a cashier's check? Uh, is it going to be cash? How are you going to get your money and when you're going to get it? A very important topic that you know and you understand where it is. Because what you want to do is sort of develop a feel for when this client or this tenant is going to pay on time. You know, they should be paying on the first of the month and you want to know what you should be expecting or how you should be expecting to get paid. For example, if you happen to be renting this place out and you happen to be an on-site property manager, Maybe what they're doing is every month they're coming down to your office on their way to the laundry facilities or on the way to the pool, and they're dropping a check off to you, and they're writing it out to you. Or maybe they're giving you a cashier's, not a cashier's check, or a money order. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways. You want to know how you expect to get payment for that. So somebody doesn't come in and say, well, you know, I, I sent you a check on that. And you go, well, wait a minute. You've, you, don't, you told me you're not sending checks. You're going to get, pay me with a money order. You're going to pay me electronically. Uh, you didn't, I didn't get the money. Where is it? That kind of a thing. Um, the next thing is, is this area is going to be talking about the security deposit. Okay. Remember this security deposit. I cannot overemphasize enough that you need to have done a walkthrough with a checklist and a signed document of the current condition of the premises when they move in. And then if, you, if they find something during that walk-in, walk-through process, then it needs to be written down in that document. Once you correct it, you need, they need to sign off that you have fixed it. So as an example, uh, as hard as you try, because you're not living there, you may very well walk through the house 
and you're going to find out some prospective tenants just kind of glance around and look around and that's about it. You're going to find other ones that are going to open up all the closet doors, they're going to look, they're going to find things that maybe you have never found. They'll look in the closets, they'll look at the ceiling, they'll look at everything. And let's say, for example, they find something wrong. Like I found in one house that I had where the closet doors that are usually made out of the, even if they're wood, they're like hollow in the center, that I never noticed that one of the doors had a hole in the back of it. You couldn't see it from the front, but that you could see it from the back if you opened the door and looked inside. So the tenant was, this person was somebody that walks through and looks for something. So they wrote that down. They said there was a hole in the back of that door. Once that was written down and I corrected that problem, I had them sign off that I fixed it. Now you may say, well, why in the world would you ever want to sign off that you fixed it? The reason why you want to do that is, is that later on, when they get ready to move out, there's an expectation on your part that there had been a problem, you had corrected it, they had seen it, and therefore that when they moved out there should be nothing wrong with that door anymore. The other problem you're going to have a lot of times with these walkthroughs, especially if people have lived in the place for a long, long period of time, is what they consider to be normal wear and tear. Uh, that's going to be a difficult situation to, and you may want to sit there and talk to the tenant about what your expectations are. Um, you may find out that your understanding of normal wear and tear is the fact that when you, when you, you know, that, that you can understand where the people are going to, um, occasionally maybe drop something on the carpet, but the carpet should be cleaned. You should not be moving back into the house or going through that walkthrough and see great big stains on the carpet. That'd be an example. Or that there would be normal wear and tear where the blinds are about ready to fall off the window. Uh, or normal wear and tear would be in something like I've seen where uh, I had a house where I had a couch in a family room. And what happened was is that I guess the kids had come in from the outside, had never wiped their feet, and would sit in front of the couch and move their feet back and forth. And when you pick the couch up, you could see where they had worn the dirt completely through the carpet. So, uh, again, that's whatever the expectations are, you need to sit down and talk to them about that, the condition that you expect the house to be in when they move out. Okay, very, very important. Or, they, or if they don't have it in that condition, then you're going to hire somebody to correct it, and that's going to come out of the, out of the deposit for them, okay? And you need to account for that, by the way. Um, anyway, security damage deposit. Um, okay, so pretty much most of this is uh, uh, most of the rest of the form. Uh, okay, I think that that's it on there. The rest of these are typically, you may not even be able to see these in the book. I can blow them up a little bit. Uh, you probably want to look at a fairly large, uh, you know, I don't know why they made them this small, but this part of the form is talking about what happens if you have late charges or return checks. You know, so keep in mind that if you're the landlord or you're representing the landlord, that landlord still has a responsibility to make their monthly payments on time. Where do they get their monthly payments from? From the tenant. If, the, if, they're, if they're lent, if they're if the tenant's late with the payment, then the landlord is having to go into their pocket and take the money out of their pocket to make the payment, or they'll have to stand for a late fee because they're late on the mortgage. Okay? Parking is another thing you want to make sure people are aware of. In other words, uh, whatever the particular or peculiar parking situation is, can you park in the street, park in the driveway? 
You don't want them to move in and find out that they're parking on the lawn or parking in areas that you don't want them to park in or if there's any kind of special restrictions on the parking. Uh, you may find out in some areas you can't park in the street overnight, okay, especially if there's very strong homeowners associations. Storage is another thing. Uh, storage of any kinds of items that they may have. Um, you know, storage is permitted as of what files, what kinds of things you're going to allow them to store in there. I had some tenants, uh, not that there was anything wrong with it, you know, the tenants were, were nice people, but what they did is that they had moved from a home that had roughly about 3,500 square feet into a home that I had that had about 1,800 square feet. And they put a lot of stuff in storage, but I'm telling you, they put a lot of stuff in the garage. And one of the first things that went wrong after they moved in is the garage door opener broke. And you should have seen me trying to change a garage door opener with all this furniture in there. It was really a pain. So anyway, you want to know where, where are they going to store them? People, I'm talking about I've seen people store old cars. Uh, you know, are they going to store if they're, if they're in, the, in the trades? Are they going to use your, the garage as a place for them to store their paints and all those other things? That could be a problem. You know, I mean... Uh, uh, a lot of people that run small businesses, like paint, they're painters or they hang wallpaper or they're uh, drywall contractors and stuff like that, they may move in and turn that garage into a shop that has all kinds of equipment in there. And that may be something that is okay with you or something that's not okay. Very, very important that you know the difference. In fact, if you go to a lot of the light, uh, mini storage warehouse places, you'll see where a lot of people will rent those with the idea in mind that that's kind of like the shop that they go to every morning to get the equipment they need. Uh, utilities, okay, is another thing. Who's going to pay the utilities? Uh, condition of the premises, maintenance, okay, that's going to be performed on the premises. Uh, that's another thing. If, uh, it's, it's not uncommon. I mean, I've seen where that we've had people... I've had some people that, uh, that, that move in, and if it amounts to anything, they seem to be completely unable to do any kind of mechanical work at all, no matter what it is. They just can't do it. And if they do, and sometimes what's sad, not sad, but sometimes what's kind of interesting is, is that when they do try to do something, you know, out of maybe a favor or they want to, they, they, they just have no mechanical ability at all, and they just really make a mess out of everything. So, uh, and then you, on the other hand, you'll have somebody that maybe will rent from you and maybe a sprinkler will go out. I've had people where maybe a, the sprinkler head goes and they'll just say, uh, you know, the sprinkler broke. I went to Home Depot. I priced it out. It's going to cost $4 or $5 to replace the sprinkler head. Is it okay if I go ahead and replace that? Which means they're digging the hole. They're doing all the other stuff. If you have confidence in the fact that they know what they're doing, that's okay. But keep in mind that there are people out there that have absolutely no mechanical ability, absolutely, and it has nothing to do with education. I mean, I've seen people that have PhDs that don't seem to know how to do, I mean, I don't think they can hammer a nail on the wall without breaking the, you know, if they were, they'd put a nail up, they'd hit it and bang, uh, knock a hole in the wall with the hammer. I mean, they are totally inept when it comes to mechanical stuff. So be careful of that. Um, over here, they're talking about uh, neighborhood conditions rules and regulations that you may need to be telling the tenant about, in other words, uh, uh, in the area. Um, anything that involves alterations or repairs, again, you know, you, it's not uncommon for people, especially when they have young children, 
to say, you know, I just, I'm going to have a baby next month and I want to paint the room blue because it's going to be a boy. Or I want to paint it pink because it's a girl. Or I want to put wallpaper up. The thing is, is keep in mind that if you're going to allow that to happen, that the next tenant that moves in may not like that at all. So what you need to do is have some kind of an agreement that if you're going to allow that to happen, that they're going to put that room back into the condition it was in when they initially moved in there. Also, some people's choice of color in a room is not really too cool, especially if you allow younger kids to paint the room. Don't, I'm just, this is just experiences that I've either seen or, uh, or witnessed myself. You know, you, you'll get some son that wants to paint, paint his room black with blue stripes or something. You know, no, no, you're not going to do that. And if you try to paint over that as a landlord, after they move out, you're going to find out you need to put about four coats of primer paint and a bunch of other stuff on there to cover it up. So you just want to be aware of that. Uh, next thing, any keys? This is, if you'll notice, all of the stuff that I'm talking about, by the way, the brook is already breaking out. This is just, you know, in paragraphs. Entry. Entry has to do with the fact of, of again, what uh, you as a landlord can do when people live in a house or if you're managing the house. What you have to keep in mind is that once you have run the tenant through the credit check and they are okay and you hand them the keys to the premises, that is their place. That's their house, that's their apartment, that's their whatever. You as a landlord really have no business in that place without their permission, period. End of discussion. You cannot, you, you, you know, you are not allowed to go in there and check to see if they do their dishes every day or some of these other weird things that people will come up with. There are certain rules, like you can only go in the house, you know, first of all, if you need to go in and do some form of maintenance on the house, you have to give them a notice. You have to tell them, okay, I typically have, for example, a, uh, a plumber come out once a year and look at the hot water heater, or I typically have the heating and air conditioning people come out and look at the heating system once a year or the air conditioning system. You need to let them know when it is. You need to find out what's convenient time for them. Also, the other reason why you want to be careful of that is you do not want to be on their premises and ever, 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 ever get accused of taking anything. So I would highly recommend that any time you bring anybody in there that, uh, that, that they're secured, they're bonded, they're licensed, everything else, that the person, the tenant is on the premises, that nobody has taken, and it may not even be the contractor that takes it. It happens to be that they left the door open or, or, or maybe they had a friend of theirs or their kids did that. You don't ever want to be in a situation like that. You want to make sure that the... In, in my mind, I have never gone into a house without having the tenant there. I have asked the tenant for permission to go into a room. I, I don't care if I've even lived there myself in the past. I never do that. I want to make darn sure that there's no, nothing has happened that I could be ever accused of taking or destroying or doing any damage to their property. I just don't need that headache. Okay? Enough said there. The... Um, the other thing, too, is, is that normally, besides getting their permission to go in, the other time that you can go in is usually if there's some form of an emergency. An emergency would constitute there's a bad storm, a tree hits the top of the roof, the house is getting, you know, it's, it's just pouring rain in there, somebody needs to get in and correct it, and they don't happen to be there, okay, or it's on fire. That's what we mean by an emergency. 
Okay, so very, very important that you, you know what your limitations are, what you can do, and they know what, you know what to expect from you. And I tell the tenant that. Even down to the day when we're getting ready to move out, I tell them, when we get close to moving out, you'll give me a call if we're renting it on a monthly, on a, on a year's basis, and it's going to be next, uh, say, May, that this is going to happen. I'll tell them the process that I go through. You know, I'll tell them that I'll be asking them, calling them, getting their permission to bring in and show tenants and uh, prospective tenants the property, and I'd appreciate it if they could help and work with me as far as making the place really look good. So I'll work with them. It's very, very important. Um, this down here is uh, talking about signs. Uh, you know, uh, it says signs tenants authorize landlord to place uh, for sale signs on the premises. In other words, if, it has been, if they're going to eventually put it up for sale. This paragraph talks about, the, uh, about subletting and assignment. There's a difference between subletting and an assignment. A subletting means that I have a place that I'm renting, and I decide, for example, that I need to move out and maybe go someplace either for a short period of time, like a few months, or maybe I have a lease that I've signed with the landlord and it's maybe going to be for a couple of years, and I need to leave for a while for whatever reason. It could be because I'm going to temporarily go to a job place. Usually the reason why you're subletting it or people will sublet a premises is because they have the idea that they have to go someplace else maybe job related, maybe to take care of a family member for an extended period of time, what happens is, is they're going to incur costs at the new place temporarily while they're there. They may have a friend of theirs that maybe is going to be visiting from another state you know, for the summer and they're going to say, listen, when I go over here, why don't you rent from me for a while? Okay. The idea is then when, you, when, when, that, when they leave, the old tenant will move back in again. You need to make sure to, to understand what, if you're going to allow that to happen or not, okay, if you will allow that to happen. That means that the tenant is still responsible for paying the rent. So it's the tenant that's going to sublease it. The person that's subleasing is going to pay the rent to the tenant. The tenant's going to have to remit it to you. Okay, so you ha have to understand that they're still financially responsible. The assignment, on the other hand, is where you actually allow the existing tenant to take the lease that they currently have and you see this more in the area of commercial property where the lease might be for several years and assign it or actually turn it over to somebody else. That's not subletting. It's, it's, it's turning it over to somebody else who's going to, so let's say, move in and take, uh, run the business. For example, if you have a coffee shop and the person wants to, to, uh, to uh, sell the business part of the coffee shop and they have a five-year lease, they may turn around after and take that five-year lease and ask the landlord if they can assign that to the new tenant. In other words, taking themselves out and putting the new tenant in, that pl in the place of it. That's what we're talking about. Okay, so that's that part of it. All right. And um, I'm going to go down through a few more things here in this agreement. All right. This part right here. Let me just see. These are just disclosures. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, whether there's any kind of lead-based paint, Lead-based paint is something uh, uh, that's very important because apparently, from what I understand, lead-based paint, if it's consumed by like a child, it can cause mental damage. It can cause mental defects. And also, and usually, I sort of visualize, I've seen this happen in older houses where the paint starts to flake off and it's sitting in the flower beds on the side. 
And it's kind of interesting, if you let kids run around, kids will put anything in their mouth. So that's what we're trying to talk about. Also, animals will do the same thing. They'll eat just about anything if you let them do it. So you're talking about, do you have lead-based paint, uh, acknowledging that. Military ordinance is another one. Uh, this here says, if applicable and known, landlord pro uh, premises is located within one mile area of... Uh, of a place where military used uh, training, uh, was the training can contain potential uh, explosive munitions. Um, in other words, if you're near a military base, I know this has nothing to do with this particular paragraph, but years and years and years ago, years ago, I'm talking about probably back in the early 70s, uh, I woke up one, um, uh, I think it was a Saturday morning, I want to say it's a Saturday morning, and I heard this boom, boom, boom going off. And what it was was up in Roseville, they took the military ordinance on railroad cars through Roseville, and the bombs on the railroad cars were going off. So a great big, there's a lot of things that have happened in Sacramento that happen to be one of them. You know, so the idea here, though, is, is that you could have military ordinance that's near there where people are practicing, or it could be live ordinance, or possibly where, and when they drop that ordinance, some of those things go off and some of them don't. You know, that's one of the biggest problems they have with a lot of that kind of stuff is, is that it just sits there, and then all of a sudden, like, you see that in the countries where they've had wars, and the kids run out there, start playing with it, and next thing you know, it blows up. So you're letting them know about that. Also, periodic pest control. Uh, this is something that, like, on everything I've ever owned, I've had pest control on. This eliminates where you have somebody come in as a service, like uh, Terminex, and they spay, spray for everything from spiders to whatever. Okay, you're just letting them know that you're going to do that. One of the things that this is nice about this is it stops spider webs. Okay, this right here has to do with just the uh, database talking about Megan's Law, about people that are living within the community that have uh, uh, sexual offenders. Okay, and uh, this is just to hear about tenants' obligations upon vacating the house, making sure that the house is in good shape. Um, this is how you're going to handle a breach of the contract or early termination. Now, I had this happen to me with uh, a house that I rented out. It actually was a house that I lived in. And the people had moved in. This was a whole, many, many years ago. And my wife and I had moved out, moved, bought another house. So we kept this house. And what had happened is these were really delightful people that moved in, and they moved to Sacramento, and their full intention was they were going to be here for, uh, they, were going to, they were actually going to work for a company up here and be here for a number of years. What they were going to do is they wanted to rent for probably about a year. That was a lease agreement that they had signed. The concept behind it was that they, during that year's period of time, they were going to be looking for a place to live, and then they were going to move out. Well, what happened was is this gentleman that moved in, uh, after a, probably about five or six months, he called me up one day and he says, listen, I've got some news. And I said, well, what's the news? And he said to me, my company has decided that I need to go back to Los Angeles. And I know that I've signed this agreement and I'm, you know, I have to fulfill this lease agreement with you. What can we do? And what I had did in that case is we just sat down at the old coffee table and just talked about what could be done. And I said, okay, I'm going to work with you. What I'll do is, if it's okay with you, I'm going to go ahead and put some signs out. I'm going to put an ad in the paper. Let's make sure the house is clean. Let's make, uh, I'm going to show some prospective tenants through the house. And I think we had the house re-rented again probably within about a week. 
which now allowed him to get out of his lease. I had a brand new tenant and we just moved on. Again, it's the idea of working with the existing tenants. That's why it's so important to get good tenants in the first place. I mean, a lot of times when people say rental property is not very good, that's because they don't spend any time screening and working with tenants. If you really do a good job screening and getting good tenants, you'll have a good experience working with them. And also if you treat them right when they live there, very, very important. Um, this talks about things such as what happens if there's a destruction of the premises, insurance. One of the things that I make sure that tenants understand is what my insurance covers. And this becomes important, I feel, because of the fact that you may very well, especially if you have people that, uh, there's a lot of people that are just not familiar with this topic. The concept is, is that if you're a landlord and you own, have insurance on your home, your insurance covers you in the event of a fire or damage or whatever your policy does, it covers you, your premises, your, you know, the house, the structure itself. It does not cover the contents of the tenant. And so I have always said to the tenant, you need to talk to your insurance agent about getting a rental policy that talks about, that covers things like if the house did catch on fire, you know, would pay to replace the contents for them, or if things are stolen, or if maybe they've caused some sort of uh, a hazard themselves on the property and somebody's gotten hurt and they get sued. They need to make sure they read and understand that. Very, very extremely important that they do that. Because some people will have a lot of valuable things and they need to make sure that, you know, that they want to make sure that they're covered. I've seen people, for example, rent an apartment. In fact, uh, it, it, I know a guy a couple of years ago, uh, he was uh, one, a guy that worked in a motorcycle shop selling motorcycles. And what happened was, is he, he was in an apartment. Everything he ever owned was in that apartment. Somebody was smoking. They took a cigarette and they threw the cigarette, and the next thing you know, the place caught on fire. When it, and the whole place burned to the ground, and along with when everything he owned, he had no insurance on anything. I mean everything. And if you ever want to know how costly that can be, just go out and try pricing out the normal things that you use on a regular basis, such as pants and shirts. And you're going to find out. Just you know, you may not think about this, but just to put an outfit on to go to work, sometimes. And if you have a regular job, it could cost you 50 or $100. If you have a suit and a tie, it could cost you several hundred dollars. So you really want to know that what's in, the contents in there, the tenant needs to know that they're protected in the event something happens. Very important. Then finally down here on the right-hand side, um, let me see if there's anything else. We're talking about, again, if we have a problem, how we're going to mediate it. Okay, if there's any attorney fees, what's going to happen? Okay. And then this is just finally down the bottom here where we're finished with uh, where we're finished with the contract and everything is signed off. Okay, very very important that you understand how that contract works. This is the last part of it where it's actually signed off on the bottom. I'll kind of zoom back out here. Um, this talks about you know compensation to the broker. It talks about uh, you know who the leasing firm is. In other words, it finishes off the contract at the end where everybody signs that everybody agrees to that. Very, very important. What I usually recommend is that if I've shown the property to somebody and I feel fairly confident that they're going to be a good tenant and, you know, we're just going to go through the process of running the checks and everything else, I will give them a copy of the lease agreement they're going to sign. And while I'm running the checks, I'll ask them to go over and totally read it. 
and, and then highlight anything that they don't understand in the contract so I can take the time to explain it to them. Okay, very important that you do that. Okay, with that, I think that takes care of that part of it. Um, the couple things that I want to point out here that they talk about, and I'm just going to kind of, kind of uh, zoom through them, if you will, if I can find out where they are here, is they talk about on um, this page here, they talk about that there's different types of leasehold estates. Okay, and if you remember, um, uh, I'll, I'll find where that other page is. Just bear with me for a second here. And um, they talk about basically the, the three or uh, four types of uh, estates that you may have, lease estates or, or uh, property estates, less than fee estates. And just so that you know, this is back to real estate principles, but when we're talking about renting something out, we have these types. We have an estate for years, which is typically... Uh, it says this estate is the right to occupy for, for a definite fixed period of time. This means it's a lease, starting and finishing time. This lease uh, time frame could be for any specific length measured in days, weeks, or months. Keep in mind that, you know, people do rent places by the week. You know, if you drive around this community, you're going to find out, especially for people that are, are friends of ours that are in the construction business, that will come to town and maybe they're the ones that run the very great big uh, bulldozers and stuff like that. There's not a big demand for those guys all the time in the community, and they'll actually go to different places and live there and work during the construction site. So they're renting sometimes on a week-to-week on a, on a -week basis or a month-to-month -month basis. So keep in mind that there's different types of periods. You can have this. The second one is where you have a rental agreement. That's normally when you rent an apartment month-to-month. -month. And then this one here is always a little bit tricky, but basically what it is is called an estate at sufferance. And I'll read this and then describe what it is. It says an estate at sufferance. This estate is created when a tenant obtains possession legally means that they had the owner's permission, authorization, and had a signed lease or rental agreement, okay, but then remains on the property without the owner's consent, which means that maybe the lease agreement has expired and they're still there, and they haven't asked the owner to, you know, haven't, haven't gotten the owner's permission to stay there beyond that point. Okay, after expiration of the terms, the landlord has the choice of doing one of two things. You can either evict the tenant through court action or accepting the tenant on the same terms and the conditions of the previous occupancy. So essentially what this means is this. Uh, and this is where I see this happen, at one example of where it happens. You have a lease that you sign with a tenant. I've had tenants, they do this all the time. They say, you know what, I'm moving to the community. I feel, uh, you know, my intention is that I'm going to build a house. That's what I'm going to do. And they think that they're going to be able to start and finish building that house, you know, within, say, six months. And they're not going to start construction for a period of time, you know, but they think they're going to have it done. So they figure they're going to rent for or lease for a year. And what happens is, is that um, I don't know whether maybe the contractor lied to them or due to lack of experience, they find out that we have days, no matter how hard everybody works, we have days that it rains, we have bad weather, we have construction delays. And you know what? It doesn't take six months. It takes nine months. So now the tenant needs to stay on the premises longer. So you may find out that when the, le when the lease agreement ends as prescribed, you know, like at the end of May, you may next year, you may find out that they'll ask for permission to stay another two or three months. And what will happen is, is if they ask for permission and you take their check 
you know, and cash it, then you have a tenancy that you've created, a month to month, whatever that happens to be, whatever their previous type of tenancy is. Okay. Okay. Going from there, we talk about different types of leases. Uh, just so you know, there's uh, the types of leases that you will usually run into. The first one will be a just a. Um, uh, and keep in mind when we talk about these leases too, we're talking. Uh, we're not talking about rental agreements. We're talking about leases. The other thing is to keep in mind we're talking more in the area of commercial type property and not residential type property. The first one they talk about is a flat rental lease. Okay, flat. This is very common. It provides for a fixed rate applied uniformly to the spaces uh, being let. It is determined by square footage uh, rental by cube foot or some other way, okay? When we say flat lease, we mean that we sit down and say every month I have an expectation that you're renting uh, 200 square feet or say 1,000 square feet, your cost per square foot happens to be $2 a square foot, therefore your rent's gonna be $2,000 a month. You give it to me, I take care of everything. The only thing you're responsible for is your utilities. If you have any maintenance problems, I'll fix it. I pay the insurance, I pay the property taxes, I do all that. That's a flat lease. Okay. Second type of a lease is called a net lease. Again, this is used in commercial. What this is is that where, and I'll read this really quickly, it says, under this type of a lease, the tenant agrees to pay a fixed rent plus expenses of carrying the property, such as taxes, insurance, maintenance, and repairs. That's called the triple net lease. You'll see those for, uh, in the newspaper, typically in the area of commercial property, not residential. Okay. The next one you'll have is a is a um, is a, um, a gross lease. Uh, again, this is where the tenant pays a flat amount, and, and and the landlord takes care of all the expenses. And then the last one I think we'll just talk about here is something called the percentage lease. Um, let me see how they have this laid out. It says a percentage lease commonly provides for a minimum fixed rental plus a percentage of the lessee's gross business income. An example of that would be somebody that has a place for rent in a shopping center. If you take a look at shopping centers and you notice that the shopping centers on a regular basis will have different types of promotion activities going on, like this time of the year you may see they may have an art show, they may have a car show, they may have something else where the whole center is trying to promote itself to have people come in. The real incentive for that landlord to do that is that Every time, he, if he's able to get more tenants to come in, or I'm sorry, more people to come in and shop in that store and hopefully spend more money, the tenants will make more money, and then therefore he's going to get a percentage of their sales. Okay, so you usually see that in retail is where you see it, retail space. Okay, and then another lease that they have in here is something called a graduated lease. A graduated lease just means that it starts off at a certain amount, and what will happen is that the lease amount will go up if some form of an index goes up. So a good example would be things like cost of living index, okay, or something to do with interest rates, something that indicates that it costs more money to do business today than it did last year. So what you do is you have built into the lease that if this index goes up, their lease will go up. Okay, that's called a graduated lease. Okay. Um, 
they also talk about the fact that if you are managing the property, you need to keep accurate records of where all the money happens to be spent. Very, very important. You're probably going to be, if you're doing this as a service, you're probably going to be providing this information to the landlord on a yearly basis. That information is stuff that's going to go to, uh, depending upon how large the property is, you may find out that your landlord, your landlord is going to want to see a monthly statement if you're renting like an apartment complex, how much money is coming in, where it's going out. Or if you're doing a, an office building or a shopping center, where's the money coming in, where is it going out. Uh, you're going to be responsible for keeping track of all those fees and costs so that when they get ready to do things like their income taxes or if it's owned by, uh, say, an insurance company or a real estate investment trust, they have to have accurate recording of where all the money is going. So you need to be able to provide that to, with any supplementary data, data to the uh, landlord of the property. Okay. And uh, they talk about just keeping a journal of where all the money goes. Most of the time nowadays, they do give you an example of one here in the book, um, you know, uh, different examples of where the money goes. The bottom line is, is that most of this stuff nowadays is kept on a computer of some sort with the date and the time and where the money comes in, how it's getting into the um, you know, how it's coming in, where it's coming from, is it paid on time, all those expenses are happening usually on a computer system nowadays. Okay. And let me go f getting close here to the end. Okay, a couple other things that I was going to man mention to you that maybe you may or may not have seen before. Um, there is companies that will do things called prepaid listings. Just so you know what this happens to be, uh, this is prepaid rental listing services. What this kind of a thing is, is this. And I, I saw the, the, this happen many, many years ago. The idea is, is that people come to town and they're looking to rent property. And they're not familiar with the area. And they want to have, they want to be able to pick an area out and they want to know what properties are for rent in that area and what the terms are and who to contact. What these prepaid listing services have done is that they will either charge the landlord a fee or charge the tenant a fee. I've seen it go both ways. I've seen it where they just have a tenant come in, the tenant pays uh, some sort of money. It could be 50, 100, depend, I don't know, you know, whatever the fee happens to be. They identify the area where they want to live, and then this service provides them a list, okay? And again, it could be something where maybe the landlord's paying for some of that, and maybe it could be where maybe the uh, company is just going in and constantly searching for any new rental properties that are on the market. They may have very well where it's kind of like the employment services that we have nowadays, kind of like the monster.com is an example of that for employment, you know, where uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the businesses that are looking for people will pay monster.com to you know to list a job that's available uh, you know for uh, you know whatever that happens to be computer programmer accountant attorney or whatever and then but the people that actually use the service don't have to pay for it it's, you know it's free to them so it depends it can go back and forth okay so that's what we mean by a prepaid listing service okay uh, I think we've talked about this before you as a as a manager uh, probably if we were to more or less sum most of this stuff up, uh, 
you know, you are responsible for managing the property and making sure that it's managed correctly, making sure that you're doing everything in your power to get the maximum amount of rent out of the property, to make sure that it's maintained well. That's why you're getting paid this fee, that you're putting quality tenants in there, and to actually help improve the value of the property by having good, solid tenants. Because if it's rental property, typically the value is not in the cost or it's in the market. It's usually in how much money it's going to produce. Very, very important. So that's what your job is. Um, and, and there's a lot of other interesting things in, in, in this um, uh, area. They do finally talk about something called rent control. I could go on for hours about rent control. Basically, we have certain cities in which uh, rent control is sort of a temporary thing in which uh, you know, the, what's essentially happening is, is that there's not enough rental housing. So what happens is there's more people coming in than there are rental houses or rental properties. What happens is is that the landlords then can charge a higher fee because there's a higher demand than there is supply. As a temporary fix, there's an attempt normally made to slap rent control on it, to say landlords can't raise the rent for this period of time. The problem with that is that they sometimes never go back and fix the original problem, which was that they needed more rental property. And so what ends up happening is, is if landlords cannot make money after a period of time, what will end up happening is then they will very, very silently make a decision to just sell the place, not make a big thing out of it, and move their money someplace else. But the real problem is that there needs to be better, higher quality, whatever rental property made available for people to live in. That's where the problem really is. So, uh, and there are certain cities that have had rent control for years, and they just never seem to get the thing corrected. And um, you know, so so you just want to be aware of that. Also, something called low-income housing. You will find if you're dealing with uh, some people that are on some kind of subsistence of some sort, you will have where they'll have what we call Section 8 housing. Essentially, this means that uh, a government entity is helping them make the monthly payment. You will find out that there are some landlords that like to specialize in that, mainly for the reason that they know that they're going to get their money. Okay, So, uh, again, it's a philosophical uh, thing. The last thing is, and I think this is pretty much it, is talking uh, a little bit about professional associations. For those of you that are interested, I highly recommend that you go out. It's easy to go out on the Internet and find these organizations that are, and what's nice about it is that from a professional standpoint, they'll have things like training, you know, because remember, you know, we, besides what I'm basically saying, there's a lot more knowledge that you need to know about, about rental property and the laws and everything else that are involved. But what they'll do is they'll have, uh, uh, like, they'll have uh, regular meetings where they'll share knowledge, different types of training, things like that. Very, very important. Uh, one of them is called the Institute of, uh, Institute of Real Estate Managers, okay, and that's a division of the National Association of Realtors. So again, um, and then they have certain specific uh, professional designations that you can get, meaning that you've taken a course of study, that once you've completed that course of study, you get this designation, which means that you have some sort of training or education in that particular area that hopefully maybe puts you a, a cut above the other people. Uh, again, if you want to pursue this as an area of, uh, of interest. If you're looking for some jobs in this area, I would recommend you contact some of the larger property management firms in Sacramento 
sit down with them, talk to them, find out what their needs are and what the job possibilities are and what it's like. So with that, I believe we're finishing up now show 28. The next time when we meet, uh, we will be talking about show 29. Thank you for coming. See you next time.